I'm going to be, uh, if you want to follow along in your Bible, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, I'll give you a chance to turn there. It's kind of towards the middle of your Old Testament. When I was uh, in uh, first grade, I lived in Nederland, and then uh, in the summer after my first grade year, uh, we moved to a little podunk town with about a population of 700 called Warren, Texas. Anybody know where Warren is? Yes, it is, it is in the middle of nowhere. I developed a thick, thick country accent in Warren. Uh, and and uh, we lived on like 40 acres, 50 acres, something like that. It was like this huge farmland thing. So I moved from like suburbia, Nederland, to farmland in my elementary years. And uh, when we moved into the house, it needed a lot of work. And just every day, it's like I, w- I would go to school and then I would come back and I was like, oh, we've painted the house. And, and then I'd go to school and I'd come back, oh, we have like new dogs. I didn't know that we were going to get... And uh, so one day I'm getting off the school bus, and you have to understand a little bit about this. The driveway uh, for my house in Nederland was about 100 feet, as most of your driveways probably are. But my driveway in Warren was about a half of a mile. Like we would be dropped off at the mailbox, and we'd have to walk a half mile down this dirt road driveway to get to the house. And so I'm dropped off, uh, and um, I'm about, uh, and I'm doing the math real quick, seven years old, give or take. And I'm walking, and uh, it's a treed area. It's trees, trees, trees all the way through. And then it opens up into this big field. And I open up into this big field, and now we have cows. We've never had cows before. And it's like, oh, we have cattle now. And there's cows. There's one bull. That's weird. Uh, we've always had barbed wire fence that went around the entire property. But now we have this one white wire, not barbed wire, not three strands or anything, just this one white wire that went around this field. I'm like, I've never seen this white wire before. I've never seen these cows before. I want to go see these cows. For some reason, at seven years old, I think that this bull and these cows are now my personal petting zoo, and I'm ready to go pet them. Uh, and I have no idea what I'm about to get into. Some of you, I heard chuckle, and you're monsters because you're laughing at a seven-year-old's pain. The rest of you who haven't laughed yet, you don't realize what this white wire is because the wire is not very strong as far as like tensile, tensile, tensile strength goes. I could probably get a good running snart and snap this wire, and so could the bull, and so could the cattle. It's not, it's not the strength of the wire and its tensile strength that keeps the cattle in. Do you know what keeps the cattle into this field? There's electricity running through this white fence. And, you know, I, my dad and my, my, my stepmom at the time, you know, like, you would think that there would be like a sign like, hey, kids, we're installing an electric fence. I, I think my dad was watching with binoculars from the door because I go up to this electric fence and, and, and I, I just need to get under it, right? And it's about yay high and I just need to get under it. And I reach out. And I touched it, and I've never moved so fast in my life. My hand like flew off, not from the electricity. Like there's not dangerous amount of electricity. It's a pop and a shock, and it surprised me how 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 hard it popped. And I was like, what what is this thing? I'm completely confused by this. Uh, and then we would add cows to the field later, and it, every cow would test this line. And it was kind of a fun little game. You'd watch the little calf, like Meh. you know, no, that's a that's a sheep move. That's what. <laughs> <clears throat> Okay, it's been a while since I had that little turny thing. And, and, and this little calf would go, and it would just kind of like, it's walking around. And it would find the white line, and it would bump it with its nose and run to the middle of the field. Like, get away from that as fast as possible. Because immediately, just like me, I got an immediate uh, respect for the power that was in that electric line. I, I didn't want to be near it. I didn't want to touch it. But then we started playing games with it. My dad, he, he had this, uh, this thing. He would, he would bet people $100. He would say, here's a $100 bill, and he'd hold it up. And he says, if you want this $100, all you have to do is hold that electric fence with one hand and pick up this quarter with the other hand off of the ground. Now, I don't know if you know how electricity works and electric fences, but you have to complete a circuit. The circuit is from that fence to the ground. And so when you reach and touch the ground, I was shocked as a child just touching the fence through my insulated shoes. This is uninsulated, hand-on-fence 
hand on ground. Nobody, he never lost $100, not, not one time, until my cousin gets there. My cousin, who was the same age as me, give or take, uh, for some reason, he had like a superpower immunity to this electric fence. He would hold it, and he would touch other people. He would just zap them. It was, it was amazing. We, we started doing things after we realized he could do this, that uh, it would be like five, six of us, all the cousins would get together, and we'd all hold hands, and we'd say, hey, hey, Jared, Grab the fence. He grabbed the fence. None of us felt anything. And then we'd reach out and touch the last littlest cousin, and he'd get zapped, and we'd all laugh. It's a lot of fun. Um, one, one day, my cousin, uh, who is immune to the electric fence, he grabs the electric fence, and he's just like, he's just holding it like this. And we're just like, dude, like, does it hurt? He goes, ah, it kind of tingles a little bit, you know. He's just, he's just sitting there. And he's wearing some white shoes that started getting little black dots on them. And he's just holding it. He's holding it. He's holding it. And eventually, the black dots started growing. He's burning his feet. He's just like, I don't, I don't really feel it. We kept those shoes for a few years. I didn't know uh, that I was supposed to respect electric fences. I didn't even know what an electric fence was. Uh, but I learned quickly through trial and error that this thing's got a little bit of power, uh, a little bit of pain involved. It does a, a service. It's protecting us from this bull, which I did get hit by. That's another story for another day. Uh, it, it protects us from the bull and the cattle. Um, and I should probably keep some distance, but I should have a healthy amount of respect for it. Um, we're going to read a story in a moment in 2 Samuel uh, where the people of God, the Hebrews, who should know God really well at this point, um, have lost a healthy amount of respect for the power of God. Uh, they've been around the things of God so much that they've become kind of dull and numb to it. Most of them had forgotten things about God or those who remember didn't speak up. And as a result of it, uh, they paid some consequences. And I, before we read it, before we look at it, I just want to just acknowledge a few things with you. Unless you flew into church this morning from wherever you're from, you're from this area. And in Southeast Texas, we have a lot of representations of God. It is very easy to be around God things and Christian things so much that you become inoculated to the power of God. You become inoculated to the truths, the power of being rescued, um, that you become bored with the all-sufficient God who has not changed in his nature at all for millennia. And yet in our little 20, 30, 40, 60 years of time on this earth, we've, we've become so used to seeing things about him that we've become bored of him. And, and so becoming bored, we've lost respect and we've lost a sense of how much power he has um, that we should probably have and probably regain. Some of us may even be in here that, that we feel like we've grown as a Christian. We've, we've done all the Christian things. We had powerful moves of God in our childhood or a decade ago or something like that. But today, if you're honest, you're like, it's been a while since, since I've, I've noticed God move in my life. It's been a while since I've grown in the Lord. It's been a while since I've taken any steps of obedience. And honestly, this Christian walk thing is kind of, kind of boring. Um, I want to read this story. Uh, I want to acknowledge that this is a wild story. Uh, and I want to maybe pull some truths out of it that I think aren't just applicable for them, you know, uh, 3,000 years ago, as it were. Uh, I think it's going to be applicable for those of us who live in the Bible Belt of Texas. Um, and we've been around God things so much that we may have forgotten, like, who he is and what he's about. So if you have your Bible, uh, look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 6. <coughs> Excuse me. We left last week, uh, David was anointed king after 
what would it have been, uh, 20 years or so? Of, or no, excuse me, almost 30 years of, of waiting. Uh, he's been promised to be king, and now he's nearly 40 years old. He was promised at age 15, and now he's nearly 40 years old uh, of, of being promised to be king. And now he finally he, he gets there. He's anointed king at about 37 years old. Um, and the first thing you do as king, you got to do, if you're David anyway, uh, he goes and gets into a fight with the Philistines. It's a, it's a great story at the end of chapter five. Uh, he's like, I'm king now. I've got all of the nation. What do you guys want to do? You guys want to go fight some Philistines? Let's go. And they went and just slaughtered them. And so that's, you can read that for yourself. But in chapter six, what we get is that David decides it's time to bring God back to the center of Israel. And so he goes on the hunt. He wants to bring back this box called the Ark of the Covenant. Read with me uh, chapter six. I'll start in verse one. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. He gets 30,000 people together. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Um, think, Just hold the phrase, a new cart, in your head. I'll come back to it on a new cart, and brought it out uh, of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahiho, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahiho went before the ark. Verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. David has a parade. He's going to have a great celebration because he just moved into the capital city. What we know as the capital city is Jerusalem happened because of this moment right here. David's like, I'm setting up camp in Jerusalem. And what do we need to do if we're going to set up the capital city of Israel? Is we need to bring the God of Israel to the capital city of Israel. And so let's go get the ark and we're going to set up shop here in Jerusalem. There are a couple of things that if, if you're, if you, if you're just coming across the story for the first time, this should pop up as, as questions for you. One, where has the ark been all this time? This is the first mention of the ark since we've started the series of David. What's been going on with the ark? Because you kind of need the ark if you're going to worship God the way that he said to worship him in the Old Testament. You know, so the Hebrews, they're supposed to be following the law. They're supposed to be following the way Moses did things. And you need the ark at least once a year uh, to be in the center of things. Where has the ark been all of this time? Two, why is it that the author mentions a new cart? Like they put it on a cart. He, it's, it's a weird phrase to add, uh, and it means something here in a moment. And, and three, who is Abinadab and, and who, who are these people? Because if you have the Ark of the Covenant, uh, you should have a couple of high priests, or one high priest, a couple of Levites. You should have some priests nearby, and they're not mentioned at all in this story. So let's talk about what the Ark of the Covenant is. First of all, if you don't know, uh, anybody ever watch uh, Indiana Jones, Last Crusade? Yes? Oh, it is the best. I don't care. You can argue with me. You're wrong. Uh, it is the best Indiana Jones movie there is. Uh, the Last Crusade, they're looking for the Ark of the Covenant, and somehow Hitler and the, uh, the Nazis have it, uh, and you get to the end of the movie. I hope someone remakes just this ending, because it's a little like claymation-y at the end, but they get to the box. that You may remember this. They're on like that cliffside, and they open the Ark of the Covenant, and old boy's face melts off it. Like, it's just a skull left. That's amazing, right? Uh, I mean, just like, I'm getting excited just thinking about it. The, the Ark of the Covenant goes all the way back to Moses and Exodus. Uh, it, 
it's a box. It's covered in gold. It's made of acacia wood. We have a table built out there with acacia wood on it. It's made of acacia wood with, with gold on it. It has the wings of cherubim on the top of it to make a seat. It's supposed to be the throne, uh, the footstool of the throne of Yahweh, of God, right there. Inside this box contains the tablets that Moses wrote on, it contains like a, a, a jar with manna in it. It contains the staff of Aaron. It's got like serious Old Testament clout in this box. The, the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be transported everywhere the Israelites went as they went through the wilderness. Um, and sometimes they would bring it into battle when God said to. And when they brought this sucker into battle, listen to me, nobody lost that battle. Like, like when, when God said, hey, bring this Ark, bring the box out and just show them, because this is my presence going before you, they, they, they just won things, right? And so what happens over time is that the Israelites forget about who the power belongs to that it belongs to Yahweh, that it belongs to God. And they just look at this box as like a lucky charm and they would keep it and they would keep it close by. And when things got a little, eh, a little hectic, they would, they would pull it out. And so that's what the box is. Why is it and where has it been all of this time? In, in order to know that, you would have to rewind back to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Maybe make a note in your margin to read that. 1 Samuel 5 and 1 Samuel 6. Uh, I would encourage you to read that. Because what happens is, is that the Israelites... They go into battle against the Philistines. God never said go into battle. They were just like, eh, let's get a fight. And so they get into a fight, and they start losing the fight. And they're like, what are we going to do? We need good generals. We need good military. No, somebody go get the lucky charm. Nobody consulted God. Nobody asked the high priest. They're like, go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it out, because that seems to be working great. And so they went and got the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, and they brought it out to a battle, and then they still lost the battle. And the ark of God was stolen from them. Could you imagine this? This is, this is, this is the symbol of your nation, the representation of your God. And you brought it into battle and you let somebody steal it. You lost the ark of the covenant. And so the Philistines now have the ark of God. Now this is where things get really uh, fun. Uh, I, I think, I think it's fun because the Philistines think they've won something. Like we have their God, right? You see, the way that the, the ancient world mind worked is like you grab someone's shrine, you grab someone's idol, you grab, you grab the representation of their God. You beat not just them, you beat their God. And so they grab this box that belongs to Yahweh, the Ark of the Covenant, and they take it back to their hometown and they take it into one of their temples and they put it in front of one of their gods. Their god's name is Dagon. And they put it in front of Dagon. So you have the statue of Dagon and you have the Ark of Yahweh right there. And it looks like just... When, when you read some commentaries on this, like, why would you put that there? Uh, it looks like what they're wanting to do is incorporate Israel's God with their God and kind of make a new religion. It's called synchronism, syncreticity. They, they bring other religions together. And so they're like, we're just going to bring Yahweh and Dagon, and like, we'll figure out how to make it work. Just put him in the temple, and, and we'll go to bed tonight. So the Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant next to their God, Dagon, and they go home, they go to sleep, they snooze. It's a great day. We won. We have, we have their God. Everything's good. They get up the next morning. They walk into the temple. You know what they find? Their statue of Dagon is bowing down before the Ark of the Covenant. They're like, oh, you can't have that. No, our God is better than that God. We need to, okay, somebody stand up our God real quick. And so they go and they pick up Dagon and they stand him back up. Okay, ah, crisis averted. We're good. We're good. They leave, they go back to bed, they wake up the next morning, they go back in there, and Dagon is now bowing down in front of the Ark of the Covenant again, except this time his head and his arms have been cut off, right? Like something is happening. It's like the imagery is like God is getting into a fight with another God late at night, and it's just destroying the guy. Um, and so they, they're losing their God piece by piece at this point. 
And then they started getting these tumors. All the people, all the Philistines, everybody around this Ark of God started getting tumors. Now, I've done a lot of reading about these tumors because it's either one, something that looks like the bubonic plague, uh, which is really early. This would be like the first instance of the bubonic plague. Uh, Or two, and I love this, uh, a couple of commentaries say that based on the way that they word the word tumor and like how, anyway, I don't know how they figured this out, but that God gave them hemorrhoids which is hilarious if it's true. So, so the Philistines have stolen the representation of God. They can't keep their God put together. And now they're getting tumors or possibly hemorrhoids. And the whole nation is getting swamped with this stuff. It's like everywhere this thing goes. They're like, get this thing out of the city. Our people are freaking out. The, the, everything's going bad. And so they take it to another city. Same thing happens. Hemorrhoids again. They take it to a third city. Hemorrhoids again. They get together. And they're like, this thing is dangerous. What should we do with it? And there's this whole story where the Philistines get their priests together and they're scratching their head. They're like, I don't know what to do with this thing. Like this is different than any of the other gods we've seen. We've got to send it back to where it came from, but we need to do something. Like we need to give him like a guilt offering. And they ask the priest, like, what kind of guilt offering does that God want? I don't know. Let's give him some golden mice and let's make some golden images of the tumors that he put on us. And we'll put that in there. No joke. And so they put a box with the Ark of the Covenant and they put in it golden mice and golden tumors. They're like, let's just hope that he accepts this. They take the Ark of the Covenant and they place it on a new cart. The first time the Ark of the Covenant's ever been put on a cart and they drive it back to Israel homeland. Uh, the story is, is that this border town looks up and they see this army with priests and cattle and boxes of tumors and just junk. And like, here comes the Ark of the Covenant down from this hill. They've never seen the Ark of the Covenant before because you're not supposed to just have it wide open. And they look at it and they say, it's coming back. It's been gone for seven months. The Philistines held this thing for seven months. They get down there and they say, we're sorry. We brought you this guilt offering. We don't know what your God likes. So we brought him some tumors and some mice. Um, can, can you take this off of our hands? And it says that that night that the, the Philistines and the Israelites, they went and got some Levites who know how to handle this thing. And they got together and they worshiped Yahweh together that night. Because the Philistines were like face to face with the power of God and they didn't like it. It was, it was overwhelming to them. And so they worshiped the one true God together that night and the Philistines went their way. And now the Israelites have the Ark of the Covenant back after seven months. And a few guys decide, I've never seen the Ark of the Covenant before. I, like, I know we're not supposed to, but it's right here. And so you have about 70 guys that decide to take a sneak peek at the Ark of the Covenant. They walk in, they take a sneak peek at it, and they die as a result of it. 70 men died, and the people are terrified. Now the Israelites have their Ark of the Covenant back, and they don't know what to do with it. And so they go to Abinadab's house, and they say, Abinadab, you take this thing, and you hold it. And this is all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Abinadab's been holding the Ark of the Covenant for the last 20 years because they're afraid. They're scared. They know that God is powerful, but they're forgetting that he's good. And they forgot to treat this box with all the rules and all the expectations, all the good things that God has showed them about how to treat him and how to treat the box. They're forgetting all of that. And for the last 20 years, Abinadab's been having this thing. Could you imagine being one of Abinadab's sons? One of his, one of his children, and you're just like, you've grown up in this house with the presence of Yahweh in your closet <laughs> this entire time. And your dad's like, Hey, listen, just don't touch it. Okay. I don't, I'm, like, maybe somebody will come get it. I don't know. I don't know. Somebody will come get it. Uh, and they just left it. What happens if you're around 
this holy artifact, if you're around the presence of God every day for your entire life for 20 years, do you you maintain a healthy respect for the power of God? Nobody's worshiping with the thing anymore. You've not seen anybody die for the last 20 years. Here's what I think happens. I think you just get dull to it. I think you get bored with it. I think think maybe Abinadab's son was probably folding laundry one day and just like threw some of the clothes nearby, maybe landed on it. Like like we do with like a chair in your bedroom or something. Like it's just like, it's a thing in the house. It's just always there. For 20 years, the people of God don't worship God using the Ark of the Covenant. So when David says that he's decided, I'm bringing God back to the center of Jerusalem, he's doing this after 20 years of ignorance, of silence, of nobody's been doing this. Nobody's been worshiping God with the Ark of the Covenant. The people have forgotten how to worship God with the thing. They've forgotten the rules that are set up in Exodus for, like, you should carry this thing on poles, not on a new cart. There's very specific. You should carry it with poles through these rods. People should have it on their shoulders and walk with the thing. They don't know that they've forgotten these things. You don't see that David goes and talks to a high priest or a Levite or anybody who would know the answers to this. He decided based on his own celebration, based on his own excitement, I'm bringing God into this right now. Let me ask you a question before I read the next bit. Have there ever been any moments in your life where big decision, um, moment of celebration, uh, new job, big moments of your life, and you decided by your own excitement you're going to bring God into that in, in just by your own passion without consulting like people who've been around God for a while, people who, who like, you know, uh, so another trusted friend who can kind of consult you. Have you ever been guilty of just being so excited for God, ignoring his way of doing things and just bringing him into something? Um, that's, maybe that's a little too abstract. I, I don't know. Uh, but, but consider it because that's what's happening here. David is having a parade. He's got every instrument you can imagine. He's written some of these songs, I'm sure. And he's got lyres and harps and tambourines. Everybody's playing it. What happens now? <clears throat> Verse six. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Yusa, who was one of the sons of Abinadab, he's not really a high priest. He's not, he, he may or not, may or may not be a Levite. There's no mention if he's a part of the right family to, to be around this ark. But anyhow, he's there. Yuza put out his hand to the ark and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. He sees, he sees the oxen just kind of take one step. The ark is on a cart, which it shouldn't be. And he thinks it's about to fall off. And so he puts out his hand. He's just going to hold it. I don't want God to be embarrassed right now. Uh, this is his parade. We've got to help God out. So it's verse 7, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Yuza. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. That is intense. I read one commentary. I have no idea how they came up with it. He said that verb. I, I, actually, I couldn't find anything, but I just like the idea. Is that it's not just that he fell over dead. It's that he exploded, which is like, whoa, uh, that's, that's huge. Uh, the, the, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Yuza, and, and he died. Let's, let's keep going. I'll, I'll come back to it. It says in verse 8, And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Yuza, and that the place uh, is called now Perez Yua, uh, the, the breakout of Yuza to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? See, what, what happens is that David sees at the, at the middle of the celebration, this moment of just his passion, that, that something happened. And Yuza died, and his two responses are he's mad at God for how God acted, and he's afraid of God for how God acted. 
So something has to switch in David's head because this is the first time David may have ever noticed that God was not pleased with one of his actions. David's been blessed his entire childhood. Every time someone tried to kill him, he was rescued. Every time he prayed, every time people would come to him, he had a great relationship with God. And this may be the first time that anything's happening. He's like, what is this? I've never, I've never seen God disagree with me. When's the last time you have had God show you something about you that, that you needed to change? When's the last time God disagreed with you about something? When's the last time uh, you wanted to go this way and after praying about it or after looking into it, you realize that that's not what God wants for you? Here's, here's another way of phrasing that. If, if um, over the last, I'm going to say over the last three months, you can't, you can't remember a time where, where God saw the world different than how you're seeing the world, where God disagreed with your viewpoint on something, um, then, then that's a sign that you're becoming dull, that you are becoming inoculated. Uh, it, it, is, it, is, it is not some random thought that we're worshiping. We're not worshiping a dead God like Dagon that you just get to make up whatever it is. The God of the Bible, is, is, at least as far as the Bible is concerned, is put out there as a living God with wants, desires. He doesn't need our help to protect his reputation. Uh, he has ways that are right, and he wants to challenge us in those ways. And his ways are higher than, than our ways. And David... He's in this moment where, honestly, he gets mad at God. And he gets terrified of who he is in his, in his power. You know, sometimes I'll, be, uh, I'll, I'll talk to folks. They're Christians. They, they, they're not doubting their Christianity. But they'll be mad at God for something. Why didn't God rescue so-and-so? Why, why, did, why, did, my, why did my family member have to, have to die uh, in, uh, with cancer. Why, why, did, why did I have to go through that season of heartache where it was so bad? And Jesse, Jesse, and then they get scared. They're like, I'm kind of mad about it. Can, can I tell you something? Some of the truest and most pure prayers you will ever pray are when you're honest with your God about your pain. And you say, God, I don't know what you were doing, but I was, I'm a little ticked off about that if I had to be honest with you. He will hear that. It is a good thing. David is considered a man after God's own heart, and the Bible's recording him here right now as being mad at God and being scared of him, honestly. What's happened at this point is uh, nobody's consulted God on how he wanted the ark to be treated. They're just treating God's things ever how they think is fun and great. They're going to have this great party, and by their own passions, by their own excitement, they're going to uh, bring the ark into the city. And God says, no, you should consult me, and you should go talk to some people who know some things about me. So what is David's response in verse 10? It says, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom uh, and all of his household. David sees what happens with the ark. The parade is going, everybody's singing, everybody's dancing, everybody's having a great time. There's a party. Oh, what? People are dying now? I don't want this thing anywhere near me. He's angry at God, he's scared of God, and he says, I don't want anything, I'm not, I'm not willing to bring this thing of God into my house yet. I don't, I don't want it. You, Obed, you take it. Maybe you'll die. I don't know. We'll watch you. We'll watch you for a little while. And for three months, this guy Obed, he has the ark of God in his house. And it says, the Bible says that he's blessed, that, that his household does well. I don't know what that blessing looks like. I, I, did he win the lottery a couple of times? I don't know. Maybe, maybe like his cattle like just grew three times their normal size. Who knows? 
<clears throat> something happened in those three months and everybody was like, Obed, he's, he's living his best life. So verse 12, they go tell the king. He says, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. They're like, hey, he's got the ark of God and he's being blessed. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, notice, notice that someone's holding the ark now and it's not on a cart. Let me, let me back up. I forgot to mention the cart. Um, it's explicitly given in multiple places in the law of God, and people in David's day know this. The ark of God is carried on the shoulders of Levites with acacia poles. That's the rule. Uh, why did they think that you could put the ark of God on a cart? Who, who had the first idea? The Philistines did. The Philistines bring the ark of God on a cart, and the Israelites 20 years later are thinking about it. It's like, that is genius. You can carry God's stuff on a cart. Why didn't anybody think of this? Because God said, don't do that. That's why. It was explicitly said, don't do it this way. But it sounds like a great idea. Do you have any idea how easy, how heavy is a whole box made of gold, wrapped in gold with like all this stuff in it? It seems like, seems like there's got to be an easier way of doing this thing. What, what's happened is, and what the, what the problem seems to be, is that the people of God were trying to do godly looking things in a way that made it easier for them. I heard a guy say this week, uh, a class that I was taking, he said, he said, nobody, nobody, not a single Christian is exempt from the hard work of discipleship. And too many of us want to live for Jesus without being crucified like Jesus. And there is no exemption for being crucified. When Jesus says that you're, we're going to follow him, we're going to take up our cross and follow him. And listen to me, uh, brothers, sisters, listen, we need to stop looking for shortcuts on that. When we look for shortcuts, when we look for the new carts to put the things on so we don't have to bear the burden of the things that God says that we're supposed to bear the burdens for, um, we are, one, shortcutting ourselves and are, in some ways, being disobedient to the ways of God. We have crosses that we are told to bear, and though there may be a shortcut, maybe someone's saying, I've got a new cart, let me help you with that. No, just say no. Uh, if you read the, the, uh, the story that we're reading in 2 Samuel, if you read in, in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles, it retells the same story. And it says that David, like in those three months, uh, he goes and he talks to some Levites. He's like, hey, we've got the, this box of God. Oh, we're supposed to have some Levites carry it. Okay, maybe we should get the high priests and other people involved. Yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, and so, so after the three months, he goes and he's like, we're doing this the right way now. We're going to bring God's stuff in here the right way. And they're going to have another party. And it says, uh, and, and when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. They took it six steps from the house of Obed. And they're like, okay, stop what you're doing. We're doing some sacrifices. Uh, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. Have you ever seen a grown man dance with all of his might? Can we just, uh, just imagine for a second a grown man dancing with all of his might and just know that's the most ridiculous sight you've ever seen in your life. Grown men shouldn't be dancing with all of their might. David, he's like, we're doing it, guys. We're bringing God back to where he needs to be. We're putting God at the center of the nation again, guys, where he should have been all these last 20 years. And he's dancing. I'm not even going to try. He's dancing with all of his might. I'm going to come back to that here in a second. 
Uh, and David was wearing a linen ephod. He's changed clothes. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. It's happening and nobody died. They get the ark of the covenant in the center of the nation. And now it's now the focus point of the nation again. They brought God back to the spotlight. And for the last 20 years, they've had to deal with Saul. They had to deal with David becoming the next king. And they had to deal with a civil war. They've forgotten that God was supposed to have been in the spotlight the entire time. And David successfully brings God back into the spotlight. But he danced with all of his might. I don't have time to read it, but if you go and read the rest of this chapter, uh, his, his wife, Michal, that we talked about last week, sees David through a window dancing with all of his might, and she is disgusted. <laughs> you look ridiculous. You're dancing, you're like, you know, and then she talks about the way he's dressed. I can see through your shirt, and you're just dancing in front of these women. You're just doing that for the women's attention. And uh, if you read it, David, he like gets into an argument with his wife and they say a lot of mean things to each other. And it ends with David uh, 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 rejecting uh, Michal. Uh, and da- uh, Michal stays barren for the rest of her life. David, David chooses to ignore one of his four wives at this point that he fought to bring back. If you remember, she was married to a different man and probably had a happy life. And David brought her back. And now that she's ashamed of him, he's like, I'm done. One of the mistakes of David, and we'll look at some of the strengths, but one of the mistakes of David that's going to be a theme for the rest of our messages is that David is willing to do the hard things publicly and unwilling to do the hard things privately. And men, listen, women too. Um, we need to be very careful. When we're really good at our jobs outside of our home, but we're not handling business inside the home, it's a recipe for toxicity. It's a recipe for disaster. That's what's going to happen to David. That's what's going to happen to his marriages. But for now, let's focus on this. David brought God back into the spotlight. I want to, I want to close with two thoughts. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first is this, is that the people uh, of God who should have known God all this time, uh, they've become dull and inoculated with the things of God. David had excitement for God, but he failed to consult him on his ways and on his preferences. God is really excited about your excitement. But that is not an excuse to do things that would please God in a, a disapproving way. Um, one, one of the people that, that I really uh, I love, I love his thinking process, he defines sin this way. Now, all sin, every sin you've ever committed. Sin is doing God-ordained, uh, God-approved things in God's disapproved ways. It, it, every sin we've ever committed is trying to get something that God says is a good thing, but then we're trying to get it in ways that God's told us plainly. Don't do it that way. Don't, don't, don't go outside this boundary. Don't, don't rush this too fast. Don't awaken love until it's time. That, that these are good, and we try to do it in a bad way. And, and David is guilty, and the people are guilty. They were dull to the things of God. They've forgotten his ways. And in a moment of excitement, tried to overcome their inaccuracy with just plain, raw passion. Jesus says to the woman at the well in chapter 4 of John, uh, which we'll look at tonight in summer school if you're going to be a part of that, a little plug for that, uh, that as, as he's talking to the woman at the well, he says to her, uh, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The goal for, for God's people is that we would worship him uh, with intense passion 
and with a knowledge of who he is and what he's about. And we would worship him in spirit and truth. And you and I, we should be growing both in passion and in accuracy. That's why we teach just straight out of the Bible, so that we have the accuracy. But like, is it okay for you to raise your hands in worship? Is it okay for you to dance with all your might, gentlemen? Uh, yes, in this room it is. Uh, but your wives will make fun of you later, as, as we've already recalled. Um, we need to be careful, church, uh, and we need to be mindful that we can also become bored with the, with the source of life in the universe. How, how back, backwards is that? We, 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 can become, we can become so used to hearing things of God that we're, we're dull and we're inoculated to hearing anything new. We, oh, I've heard the story of Noah before. I've heard David and Goliath a thousand times. Well, what if you looked at it with new eyes? Will you hear a new thing? The answer should be yes. We, we should worship uh, God with spirit and truth. And uh, David learned that lesson the hard way. The people learned that lesson the hard way. The second thing is this. Yuza sees the, the ark of God, or the, he doesn't even see the ark of God move. He just sees the people, the, the oxen stumble, and he puts out his hand. Why would you put out your hand? Because he wants to save God's reputation. How embarrassing for God would that be if that box just fell down, like right in front of everybody? Oh, man, you can't have that. It shouldn't have been on the cart to begin with. If people were carrying it, it they wouldn't have stumbled. That's like the nature of having four independently moving things. But the cart is, 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 is stumbles. Yusa was trying to save God from embarrassment. Uh, he wrongly believed that God needed a, a public relations guy to help him out. Only dead gods hire PR guys. Dagon needed some PR. Dagon fell, falls down and he's bowing to the Ark of God. The Philistines, God is bowing to the Ark of Yahweh. And they needed, like, let's go prop him up so that everybody knows that he's still a good God. He's a dead God. He needs a PR guy. God, Yahweh, our God, he doesn't need our help in bolstering his reputation. His reputation has been just fine before you were born. He's doing okay. It's, there's a reason the Bible is the most you know, widely sold book in the world. There's a reason why Christianity and Judaism has not failed in all of the different trials that it's gone in. You would think eventually one of these like guys would have stopped that religion. No, because our God isn't dead. He's alive. And when we do things to apologize for God, when we, when we say the truths of God, but we try to dole them a little bit, um, we, we're trying to be God's PR guy. We're, we're like used to putting our hand on the box. We don't want God to be embarrassed. God, God has definitions of what marriage should look like. God has definitions of how uh, husbands should treat their wives and how wives should treat their husbands. God has definitions for how we should love people who are not easy to love. How we should love people who will look at you and say, stop loving me. I hate you. Well, you know, I'm supposed to love you anyway. God, God has expectations for that. And when, when we... When we apologize for that, or when we when we try to try to blunt that a little bit, we're we're trying to be God's PR guy, and He doesn't need our help. His reputation is just fine without our help. What what we do instead is that we're invited into a relationship with the living God. We're not invited to his fan club trying to recruit more fan clubs. We're invited to know Him and to exist in His world as representatives of Him. But we're not. He doesn't need our help. When the other gods get near anything of Yahweh, they collapse, they crumble, they get their heads cut off. Our God, he's doing just fine. 
As we, as we uh, leave this, I just want to leave you with a quote. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you guys know Chronicles of Narnia. Someone handed me this as a kid. I'd just become a Christian. I didn't even know it had like Christian themes in it. I'm reading Chronicles of Narnia as a kid, and there's this, there's this moment where the little girl, uh, uh, is, is she's she seen the lion, Aslan. Aslan represents God in the Chronicles of Narnia, and she's seen the lion like on a hill, and the lion talks sometimes. And it's kind of freaking her out. You know, Lucy's like, come on now. Like, there's a, there's a daggum lion running around here. Do you guys know this? And so she talks to some people and she asks this guy named Mr. Beaver about the lion. And she says, Hey, Hey, yeah, you guys love this guy. Is he safe? Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says back to her safe. Who, who said anything about safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. He's a good lion. Now we, we sometimes we, we walk around as if we have God completely tamed. We have God completely like in our box. Like, like he's, he's just going to bless everything you do because you went to church this morning. That's not how it works, guys. He's a living God and he's not tame, but he's good. He's wild. He'll bless whatever he wants to bless. He'll, he'll, he'll be a part of anything he wants to be a part of. And we should, in, in, in honor and reverence and respect, fight the dullness, fight the inoculation and just say, I'm, I'm choosing to do my life my marriage, my job, my workplace, my, 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 the way I treat my children. I'm, I'm trying to do this God's way and stop asking him to bless my mistakes all the time. Because, you know, they put, they put God on a new cart. God, don't put me on a cart. I don't, I'm not going to bless that. I'm going to give that cart a flat. <laughs> you do things my way. You do things God's way. Uh, you're going to see blessing. Obed, Obed saw blessing. All right, let me pray. Uh, We'll watch the queue. Do we have a queue? We'll watch the queue together. Uh, we have bracelets. Okay, uh, there are bracelets for children's church. If you would like to pray uh, and just be reminded, put on uh, one of the bracelets. They'll be in the outpost, I believe. Uh, Father, we come to you this morning. Uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the, for the reminder of, of your power, of your goodness, your holiness. Uh, Lord, forgive us for when we don't take you seriously. Forgive us when we're dull to your ways. Forgive us when we're forgetting your power. We're forgetting... We're forgetting that, that you have the power to rescue us. We just, we just take you for granted. We take your blessings and we run. Lord, we don't need another blessing. We just want to be close to you. Um, Lord, may we be reminded that you are the living God, the living God. You don't, you don't need our help. You just invite us to be along for the journey. Lord, I pray your blessing over the people here. I pray that as a result of their focus this morning, uh, they'd be reminded of your goodness and uh, would be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen.